You are listening to a National Gallery of Victoria audio program available at www.ngv.vic.gov.au. In this episode, Philip Brophy talks about post-war Japan and the birth of Astro Boy. At the start of the 50s, well, 1951, when Tetsuan Atomo or Astro Boy is first published in Japan, that's, uh, that's one year before uh, the American occupation ends. So it's actually produced under the American occupation in Japan, um, which is a period that still requires a lot of complex accounting in terms of what impact it did have on the Japanese psyche and the Japanese mind. And the complexity with which very proud Japanese then became very humble Japanese in the post-war environment and the uh, the very, very different and conflicting views that different Japanese had in terms of their involvement with the war, their connection to supporting the emperor, their relationship with the armed forces. Uh, this was a very complex psychological time for a nation. And it's actually the ground zero for what has then continued to be produced in Japan, at least in the 20th century. Maybe not so much the 21st century now. I think potentially, uh, sociologically, uh, what is produced in Japan may not have direct connections to those repercussions. But definitely something like uh, the a lot of the work produced by Tezuka Osamu uh, carries with it this uh, sense of having been involved in the war and then having been released from the war and then having to account and reflect on what the war actually meant. And Tezuka mostly does this through the science fiction medium more than anything else. He has a lot of dramatic conflict that deals with kind of more one-on-one psychological relationships with people and drama and tension. But something like Astro Boy is... uh, It appears to be kind of like a kid's superhero kind of saga and he's good and there are evil people and he battles with them. But the fact that the evil people as such are generally humans who are controlling robots because Astro Boy rarely fights humans. He only actually fights other robots. So you've got this complete world that spans across all the episodes of Astro Boy where robots are the symbols of what humanity is and what humanity can do in good and bad terms. And I think this is an incredibly unique approach to symbolic storytelling, that you're actually expressing the human condition through machines. And not surprisingly, uh, that then links to the electronics technological explosion that happens at the end of the 60s in Japan, where one way of reading in Japan is that it actually invested everything into machines. It actually accepted that there was not so much of a soul anymore in the human, but the soul now karmically has been displaced into the machine, therefore let us respect machines now. It's like, well, we blew it there. 
Now it's the machine's turn. And Astro Boy literally is uh, an ambassador for machines, which symbolically then means that he's an ambassador for for Japan, which is a machine state. So there are many complex psychological and sociological ways of reading anything that happens in these stories uh, when one considers when they were being produced and what are the themes and sentiments that are uh, crucial to every one of the episodes. The other thing is that um, Astro Boy himself, even though he's not human, he's actually full of these complex human emotions and traits which he himself is continually pondering. So Astro Boy is like this programmed machine who's programmed to feel in certain ways, but then he actually has this level of consciousness where he questions why he is feeling these programmed ways. So it's actually a very complex character, Astro Boy. Um, Not once does he not regret having killed a robot. And, yeah, the standard Astro Boy tale finishes with him incredibly upset and sad that he had to kill a robot. And so even as a kid, I remember watching the American version of the original black and white Astro Boy and I could never put my finger on it like, well, there's something not really Scooby-Doo about this. There's something, why is he crying now? What's this and... Okay, and then suddenly the, the credits come on and it's like Astro Boy up in the air, da 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 And you think, oh, okay, yeah, it's, it's Astro Boy, you know. But like even the American translation could not hide this strange uh, remorse and regret that kind of would linger in a lot of the stories. And if you watch the DVD releases now, you can clearly see it, you know. And so... For that then to um, accidentally come out into America and then the rest of the world uh, as a form of children's entertainment, I think, was such a wonderful accident, you know, because arguably I don't think the Americans fully understood what they were getting because the Americans were part of the ones, they were part of the, the cultural machinery that created this psychological schism in the Japanese, right, post Hiroshima, right, even though there's no, you know, you, we're not talking about blaming one side or the other, but, you know, there's a certain codependency of what happened in uh, Japan and uh, between Japan and America in the Second World War. I, I can't think of another culture in the world that deals with this kind of post-war trauma in the way that the Japanese do. And in fact, I can't even cite a film or a, uh, a manga, maybe there's novels, but I don't read novels, um, uh, where uh, that comes from Japan, even from into the 60s and the 70s, where there's a reassessment of what happened in World War II where blame is placed. Right? There are so many Japanese films particularly from the late 60s into the 70s, where there is like an analysis of, a self-critical analysis of Japanese culture and society and its involvement in the war. And all the blame is placed on the Japanese people themselves. They don't even once accuse the Americans of anything. And it's almost like this kind of, um, it's not a masochistic reliving of like, you know, why did we do this kind of thing? But it's particularly looking at 
what were the psychological effects of warfare on one's own culture. And I think this is a very open-ended, very non-judgmental, not actually moralistic way of looking at what happens when one gets involved in war. And anyone that really gets involved in war does know at some point that the things that can most horrify you are the things that your own country does rather than what the enemy does. The enemy's easy to be horrified by because you've already made them into monstrous beings in order to fight them and be against them. And that's part of the psychological manipulation in war, which is what we've still got going now. It doesn't change that way. You know, in order to kill someone, you make them inhuman, you make them monsters, you make them things. That way they're like pests. You just squash them, right? But then you see exactly, you know, how, um, you know, your own culture and your own society can be towards you in times of survival and uh, that can be very uh, illuminating in in very kind of traumatizing ways and Tezuka has written specifically about his involvement in the war you know even of him you know trying to draw comics while bombs are being dropped and things like this right and uh, so he actually lived through the war and in a number of instances, you know, he has um, made comment about how once he got through the war, he had this drive for life and celebrating life that, you know, was unstoppable. And uh, I really do think that's something that kind of made him such an incredibly energetic, driven person. He's almost maniacal in the amount of work that he produced. It's like, I have to tell these stories. I have to tell these stories, you know. And so many of the stories do link back to this idea of someone being divorced from all the chaos that's going around, yet having some level of consciousness and perception and realising, no, something's wrong here. And uh, the best way Tezuka, of course, could always project that was through a non-human entity, which is why robots and beings and aliens and cyborgs and doubles and replicants appear so much through his stories because they're the best vessel to be within a culture but also then to be outside of the culture at the same time. And I think that's what Tezuka himself felt after the war, you know, it's like, well, I was in the war and now I'm out of the war, but I I'm, I don't feel connected to things. And I think that that disconnection comes from, um, you know, a level of intellect, a level of perception, a level of creativity and a, a desire to want to express that dislocation and uh, the richness of post-war Japanese art does actually come from that, from people kind of feeling well, I'm in some disembodied state, I'm, I'm disconnected from things and um, I want to explore that and express it. And Tezuka did it with a, a popular art form and did it very successfully.